Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. And I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. We're podcasting from Northeast Ohio. This is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series, Race and Democracy in Northeast Ohio, a collaboration with the School of Peace and Conflict Studies and the Center for Pan-African Culture at Kent State University. The project includes a 10-podcast episode series focused specifically on the intersections of race and democracy in Northeast Ohio. We're also planning community workshops on the topic of race and democracy and developing online curricular materials, such as activities, toolkits, and concept pages. This series is made possible with funding from Mark LeWine and the John Gray Painter Program. Check out our website to learn more about our upcoming events and stay up to date on new content. You can find us at growingdemocracyoh.org. And today I am incredibly honored to be co-hosting the podcast with uh, Dr. Shamara Arkey and have with us two amazing guests, Asia Jones and Samira Malone. Asia Jones, a Cleveland native, is a longtime Cleveland community organizer and activist. Asia started her work as a civic leader within grassroots organizations and is a proud graduate of Neighborhood Leadership Cleveland. She served as a leader of Black Lives Matter Cleveland since 2020 and sits on the board of Northeast Ohio Workers Center. Asia Jones currently serves as the Director of Community Empowerment for Midtown Cleveland. Also with us is Samira Malone. Samira Malone is the Neighborhood Planning Manager of Midtown Cleveland. She received a Bachelor's of Arts in Urban Studies and a specialization in Urban and Regional Planning from Levin College at Cleveland State University in 2017 and a Master's of Urban Planning and Development in 2020. In 2021, she was named Crane Cleveland Businesses 20 in their 20s. All right, so we are super excited to have you both here. Um, just to get us started, uh, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about who you all are it, from your definition, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, how do you identify? Where do you work? You know, what's your story? Well, I can go first. My name's Samira Malone, but everyone calls me Sam Malone, like the, like the character in Cheers I always hear. I'm actually named after my grandfather, so I call myself Sam in reverence of him. Um, but I am a neighborhood planner for Midtown Cleveland. So within that role, I uh, manage and steward a host of our different planning and placemaking initiatives. So that's a wide spectrum of things. Anybody who's familiar with community development knows that when you work for a CDC, you often wear many hats. So I do things from technical planning projects like streetscaping to public art um, to green infrastructure uh, park planning, you name it, we probably do it underneath the CDC umbrella. But that's one of the really fun, gratifying parts of my work is that I get a chance to work on such a full spectrum of things. And really was the reason why I got into planning. So I'm actually born and raised from Cleveland, grew up on the east side in the central neighborhood, graduated from East Tech, so CMSD uh, grad as well. And I was what really... Um, motivated me and piqued my interest in going into 
planning and the work that I do was really seeing that there was a lack of um, specifically black women doing the work um, and specifically in areas in which you have predominantly black communities like uh, neighborhoods on the east side. So that's, that was always my motivating factor behind getting into planning, but I won't monopolize too much of the time and an introduction because we also have my very interesting, one of the most interesting people uh, <laughs> on the call today, Asia Jones. So I'll turn it over to her. Uh, thank you so much. I, I, I just I love and adore my esteemed colleague, uh, Samir Milan. It's, just, it's been such a joy uh, working alongside of her uh, at Midtown Cleveland. So a little bit about myself. My name is Asia Jones. Uh, some call me an interesting person. I, I mean, well, Cleveland Magazine called me one of the most interesting person of 20 people of 2022. Uh, I'm grateful for that. Uh, but what got me here today is my work within the community. Uh, I am an engagement and involvement and community outreach practitioner. Uh, I am the director. My official title is the director of community Empower empowerment at Midtown Cleveland. Uh, what got me here is I, I started organizing about eight years ago, uh, thoroughly and intensely and intentionally in the um, Cleveland community. I'm a mother, I'm a wife. Uh, one of the things, some of the things that I do, and I don't want to like monopolize on that time because we do a lot, right, Sam, is uh, I direct empowerment. What does that mean? I make sure that we are doing community development, not just economic development, not just real estate development, but what does that look like for me? That means we're making sure that those within the community have a seat at the table. Are there are a part of the decisions that are happening around them, and we want to change that to things that are not just happening around them, but with them and for them. And um, one of the things that I do is I support uh, community-led initiatives, and I introduce uh, community members to resources, and I lean on our partners to make the changes in our community more holistic and also make sure that we have intentional programming uh, that can that can serve as a way to heal, as a way to empower, as a way to uplift, and as a way to engage uh, the community members in the area that we serve. Okay, so I have a quick follow-up real quick. Asia, you also ran for office. So you're an organizer, you work in the CDC, but you also ran for office. C could I just like nudge you a little bit to just like briefly mention what, you know, that role, because to me, it's such a significant part of, of, of who you are and how it kind of like connects the organizer to the CDC um, work that you do. Absolutely. I'll talk a little bit about, I would like to talk a little bit about um, how that came about. I knew um, a few years ago, I'm like, oh, you know, I think it'd be great to run against the old guy in my old neighborhood. And um, boy, did I run. So 2020 um, catapulted catapulted me into making that decision sooner than I thought. Um, so 
a lot of the things that happened in 2020 exposed a lot of disparities that had been somewhat hidden to other neighborhoods and other leaders and other people. But I knew all about what was going on, all about the health disparities, all about the food apartheid. It's no longer a food desert. Uh, so I knew about all of those things. And I was like, I am organizing, I'm activating, I'm advocating. I need to take it. I need, I need to take this uh, activism to the next level. So I pulled petitions in January of 2021. I actually started campaigning in November of 2020, uh, where a lot of organizers, we came together and they was like, listen, we need somebody to run next year. And man, it was a unanimous vote from uh, 28 of my closest organizing colleagues. And my name was the only name in the pot. And uh, that's what really shifted me from... From it being a thought to it being an action to uh, uh, starting and igniting a movement within Collinwood, because a lot of the things that I saw and I still see is the issues, 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 but there is no solutions. But when I tell you the people that I've met, the people that I've worked with, the people that have touched me, that I've touched, uh, we are waiting to contribute, right? We're just waiting to contribute and, and don't, un don't, some, some of us don't understand how or why, but we want to contribute. And, um, I'm so grateful that I was able to find a lot of those people mm -hmm. and, um, have them a part of my team, a part of my campaign so that we can bring forth community driven solutions. Uh, so yeah, I ran, uh, it was intense. <laughs> One of the most memorable and the most um, transformative uh, experiences of my life. Uh, November 2nd came. Uh, I did not win the seat, but I, when I tell you that I won in several other ways, I won. Okay. The movement is still on fire. The people are still hungry. The people are still moving. The people are still ready, uh, which led to the opportunity to me, for me to, with my experience, to become a part of this community development corporation that I am at now. Yes. Uh, waiting <laughs> to contribute. Jones, 2022. Yeah. When you see that citation, yeah. don't act new. Okay. That's Asia Jones. <laughs> Bars, you understand me? There it yes. is. There you have it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. I am so excited to have you both here. Um, so with that, I want to turn back to Sam and ask um, another question. So I am big on origin stories, right? And so I remember when I met Sam. I met Sam through uh, a former student of mine, and it was the week of the RNC in Cleveland. So, you know, it was about it. <laughs> it was about it, about it that week. It was the week of the RNC in Cleveland. Uh, it was about it, about it that week. That was the kickoff week for uh, Shooting Without Bullets. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Um, but I left that session totally energized, and I came downtown to this student-led teaching, right? And so I get there and, you know, it's a couple of black girls there with some signs. And I'm like, oh, these are nice signs. <laughs> they weren't like handwritten signs. They were like 
tweets that were blown up on poster board to talk, to speak back to um, the process of the RNC. At that time, I was working really closely with Case Western Reserve University. And I know at that institution, there was a conversation around um, the militarization of the cops coming into town and they were moving students out of the dorm Mm -hmm. to house cops. Um, And so I know that you were a student at John Carroll at that time. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about um, your journey, right? So yeah. Asia told us a little bit about her journey to how she got there. Yeah. So how do you move from frontline student activist dope? Y'all check out the story on Democracy Now! Okay, <laughs> that's how dope it was. We got picked up through the national outlet. Um, so tell us a little bit about your journey from yeah. student activist, right? Yeah. To where you are now at Neighborhood Planning Manager. Yeah, I, so it's very interesting because at that moment, that was a really critical summer for me because that's really where I made the pivot that I wanted to focus specifically on planning. And it's so interesting because it was actually a collective of me and a bunch of my girlfriends and other friends that they had through our kind of college pipeline. So I actually was a student at CSU at the time, but a bunch of my friends were students at John Carroll. So we were mobilizing there um, because they had like just a really active political and social scene on that campus that I was really hungry to be a part of. Um, the way the way I even got involved in politics and and, and, and and social issues and things of that nature is, is very much so a part of my upbringing. Anybody that knows my mother um, knows that she instilled in that in, in that in me very early, um, instilling a, a a pride and a sense of blackness in me very very early. And when you when that's instilled in you as a child, you have a pride, but you also have a, a reasonable anger for the disparities and the systematic treatment of Black people and the history of that. So it was something that has always fueled and motivated me through my work um, coming into my now adulthood and the role that I sit in as a planner. I'm very much so an advocate, not only for the built environment, but for creating liberated spaces for Black people. Um, and so starting as a, a student organizer, we had all got together. We were like, yo, this RNC is coming. Millions of dollars are being poured into the city for this one week of events. Um, meanwhile, the city has been struggling to stay afloat. I mean, c- making criticisms of, of simple things of the lack of investment in, 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 in infrastructure and the lack of investment in our school systems. And we began to start having these conversations internally. And we were like, yo, it would be dope for us to run a counter campaign to the RNC and really start having these dialogues on Twitter. Because Twitter was the main platform. Everybody was on Twitter. Everybody, everybody's still on Twitter. But when I was in college, I was on Twitter super heavy and, you know, really getting an understanding of what my political and social identity was through conversations and, and reading other people's points of views and really immersing myself in these conversations. So we were like, yo, let's run... A Twitter campaign where we create our own hashtag called CLE over the RNC. And so we began having these dialogues about how all of this money was being invested into the militarization of the police to protect really white folks, rich white folks coming into the city for a week. But we're in constant crisis. The city is out. We're in an economic crisis. We're in environmental crisis. All these different things, and we can't. We can barely get funding to keep things afloat in our own backyard. And we saw also this shift for there to be all this temporary beautification to meet 
to make way for this event when, again, the city had been struggling for decades due to economic disinvestment. And so we were like, all right, we obviously are passionate about mobilizing around this. And we have this really interesting conversation and dialogue going on on Twitter. How can we get people physically mobilized so we can stand up as students and say, no, this is something that, because I, I think part of our frustrations is that so many people were um, kind of uh, excited or, you know, kind of, it was this energy around the RNC that this was this great thing for the city. And we were like, no, we want to be very intentional about the fact that this is actually doing a great disservice and a detriment to the city. It's doing a great disservice and a detriment to the community, to the people who are living in this community, because it's sending a signal that um, the only the only justification for investment is when it is rich, white, affluent travelers coming into the city. So um, we decided that we wanted to not only have these teach-ins, but we also wanted to do a demonstration. We wanted to occupy public square. And in our occupying a public square, we also wanted to uh, highlight the conversations and dialogues that we were having on Twitter. Uh, so we decided to take some of our favorite tweets that people were uh, sharing um, in relation to the hashtag that we created and we blew them up and we occupied, um, we occupied public square. And it was really empowering to me and my friends and everyone that were involved because it was really some of our first time um, doing our own organizing from top to bottom. I had been involved with student organizing before, but it was really something that I really took on um, and, and showed up in leadership in a major way. And it really was a catalyst for me to understand the power that I had within myself to be able to not only advocate for myself, but advocate for my people, advocate for my city, advocate for my neighborhood. Um, and that really awoken something in me that I have a role of leadership to play in the community and that my voice should be heard and that I need to be at the table just like anybody else. Um, and so actually that summer, I had decided to make a change into planning um, because I had a very similar realization around, originally I was a, in college, I was uh, studying, studying political science. Actually, I wanted to go into constitutional law. Uh, very, I was very idealistic, like I'm gonna change the world through politics, you know, all that good stuff. Um, and I actually sat down with a, a colleague over at Levin, I mean, not, not a colleague, a fac faculty member over at Levin, and I was sharing with her that I had a growing interest in the development of neighborhoods. I had really saw um, the hyper-development that was happening on the west side that was really displacing Native residents um, and was really um, starting to have a growing concern as to how that would impact the, the east side. Um, because, you know, if, if something is happening somewhere, it eventually is going to creep over to your neighborhood. And so I was really, really interested in um, exploring development that doesn't result in gentrification and displacement. And she was like, it sounds like you need to be over in the urban college. And so that's when I decided to take a few classes over in urban affairs. I think I took an intro to urban affairs and urban planning. And I knew immediately that's where I was supposed to be. Like I knew that um, and, and got even more confirmation as I got into my studies, because even though I, it was something that really invoked a passion out of me, I also was concerned because so many of the students that were in the program looked nothing like me, but they were charged with the responsibility of making changes and development in neighborhoods for folks that they look nothing like. 
um, and that they have never lived in, have never had any real tangible, genuine experiences in. So I, it, it concerned me that a whole uh, generation of planners were being cultivated and created and, and, and very few of them were black women or black people for that matter. So it was even more of a, uh, a push in that direction to continue to do this work because not only do I have the expertise to do it, but I also have the lived experience. And I knew that was something that I brought to the table that many of my classmates did. Thank you for that. It's really, so, so many people have, well, both of you, um, but others as well, um, have their roots in, in organizing or having that, like that one moment, that spark that, that, that motivates them um, to get engaged at a deeper level and, and thinking about it. So it's a really interesting story to hear kind of the trajectory um, from mobilization and organizing uh, into neighborhood planning um, as well. So I have a question for Asia, um, right? Because you're an, you were an organizer, you ran um, a campaign for elected office and in the, your current capacity, you also um, you know, are, are doing community empowerment work. So I'm really curious about, you know, your approach to um, building relationships across lines of difference and, and specifically thinking about kind of the idea of building intersectional solidarity. I think one of the things that has been done in his, I think historically in community development corporations is um, there was, there's been decision-making um, without involvement of who those decisions will impact. So my process and what I know to work and what I know to be true and what I've seen and what I've experienced as a community member, um, you know, as a political candidate, as an organizer, as a mother, as a uh, neighbor, um, that I wouldn't want to be done with me. Uh, so my process is listening. Like I'm okay. I, I, one of the things that I've learned over the years is, hey, I have this thing going on. I have these solutions and I have these and I have that. And it's just like, you're like, well, I don't know you. I don't know the organize, organization you come from. I don't, I don't understand, you know, what you're, you know, it's not a job for me. This is a process. This is, this is more of a commitment to the neighborhood because I know that's what I want in my own neighborhood, which is not too, too far uh, from Midtown. So it's really, you know, and I go out and I, and I, I knock doors and that's not something that's regular. That's not something that you see a CDC director doing, but how can we build that trust? We're not just going to send you mail. I need you to see me, hear me, feel me. I've, and I'm looking forward to having the whole staff out uh, knocking doors because when I approach certain areas, it was like, Oh, I know Midtown, but I really, I don't know where it is. I don't know where the office is. I don't know what are you, what's going on. I see your, you guys are putting your, your logo everywhere, but what's really going on? I don't even understand what a community development corporation is. So at this point, at this stage in, in my tenure is reintroducing what a community development is supposed to do, the rights that you have, how this is, we work for you. 
And I need to make sure that I'm showing up and also encouraging my colleagues that work with me. We we have to do this differently. You know, we can't just send out mail. We can't just post on social media. We can't do any cold calling because people are we we've made it through a pandemic, honey, and people aren't playing anymore. I think before there was a little bit of games going on, but that I don't the games are not here. They don't exist anymore. So acknowledging that and understanding that there has been broken trust in the past, how asking how what are some ways that you will feel better being served by your community development corporation? Asking questions. Do you know what a community development corporation is? Do you know the resources that exist in your neighborhood? Um, how can how can I help? Who can I connect you with? Starting from there, not coming necessarily with the solutions, but asking what type of solutions you need. You understand? Because everybody's at different levels. There are some people, oh yeah, I have a good relationship with Midtown. I said, well, look, I don't, well then I need you to volunteer some more then. <laughs> so coming coming um with an uh, with with openness and asking questions um of how how can we better serve you and that that's that's a solid trust builder because anybody can come to you say i'm offering this 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 and this but i don't know you i don't i don't want this this and this i need that 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 and that you know what i mean so come asking what's needed not just coming in like oh i got all the stuff so and then i realized that that's a way to build trust and that's a key right and that's a key mm-hmm. organizing skill that we learn on the streets, right? Like I met you as a frontline activist too, as a Black Lives Matter organizer, right? That's how we begin yeah. to develop this relationship. And so I just want to ask a follow-up question about um, uh, 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 Sam said this reasonable anger, right? I'm quoting y'all. Y'all got all the good quotes. She said it perfectly. <laughs> oh God, when she said that. I don't know if you saw, I was, I was like, reasonable anger i'm putting that in my notes yes i wrote it down too malone come on 2022 come on (laughs) (laughs) okay but thinking about this reasonable anger it made me think about um building off of sam's comment around reasonable anger right tying that back into um the national narrative that we're having with um debunking this stereotype or this trope of the angry black woman Brittany Cooper, um, a couple of years ago, she wrote Eloquent Rage, right, to talk about the validity of being upset and being angry, particularly in our intersecting identities as Black women doing this work. You shared the strategy um, of the work that you're doing now at the CDC, uh, but very much like Sam, I met you in an activist capacity as a frontline activist with Black Lives Matter in the streets. <laughs> and so I want to talk a little bit about that strategy that you described so beautifully with your CDC colleagues, door knocking, listening. How does that actually translate to a frontline activist? Like, what does it look like, sound like, and feel like? Are there different tools that you apply to use the same strategy of listening? So I think one of the, for for me, and like I've been in this work for quite some time, and I had, I remember starting off and like, you know, door knocking and, mm, I was in my early twenties 
And I was just like eager to help, eager to help. And I remember having a situation where I'm like, you know, at a food drive and, um, you know, there are people that are coming from all over. And um, I don't know their backgrounds, but you can tell there was a lot of struggling going on, but I didn't know exactly from what, right? So I remember coming in and I'm just like, I want to help. And they're just like, I don't know, you know, I don't. I, I, it was, we were, we had went from people walking up to serve to actually packing boxes and giving people boxes, right? So I remember packing this box. I'm like, oh, they're going to, you know, it's a food bank. They'll, they'll enjoy it. And then I realized um, not too shortly after when I went to serve this one lady, a box is an older lady. She's like, I'm allergic to this, 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 this in the box. And, you know, why would you give that to me and, and things like that? And I, and I and I remember feeling a little upset, like I'm trying to help, you know, and then I and I remember thinking that later because I, I really felt bad. I'm just like, I don't want, you know, she really kind of scolded me a little bit. And I was like, oh, man, like this is kind of tough. And then I remember sitting and I remember talking to the ancestors and I'm like, I have to do this, but I, give me the tools to do this right. And I remember just thinking and, 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 you know, continuing to do the work. And I was like, you know, what if I asked her what she wanted? Would that have been the same? That experience sit with, sits with me every day because her frustration was not me. I don't know what was going on, where she came from, how did she have to take it? But I didn't know any of those things, but I know she came to the food pantry for food. That's what I did know. But I also, I, I don't know why she came, like how, how she got there or what are some of the issues? What are some of the, the hurdles that she went through? And I realized the black experience is not a monolith, right? I had a car, you know, I, I had, I had a job and I was doing this on the side. So I had to, I had to reshape the ways that I was serving, Right. And I had to ask, how do you need to be served, right? So that translated into me taking a lot of, oh, they got an attitude or this is personal, or taking that out of this work, removing it from this work, because I don't know what's going on. I know you're here for help, but I don't know how you got here. I don't know the struggles. And, and that's why I'm so big on mental health. And acknowledging that there are a lot of people that have gone undiagnosed for depression, anxiety, and so many other things. That's why I approach a lot, all everything that I do with caution, with care, because I approached it with, hey, I'm here to serve. I got you. I'm doing this. That's not it. Because like she was allergic to paint. She said, I'm allergic to this. I can't even touch this. And I was just like, oh, you know, I did this. I put this box together for you. But I didn't know what was going on. And mind you, this is an older lady, so she probably missed out on a pension or some, probably going through abuse, probably, you know, returning citizens. I do not know. That's That stays with me because I've had to remove my own, oh, that was, no, I don't know what's going on. So her passion may come out as rude. Her passion may come out as loud. Her passion may come out as harsh, right? But it has nothing to do with me. So I need to figure out what you need. You may not need meat today, but you need bread. 
You understand? You may not need uh, grant money, but you need help filling out this uh, application or you need help filling out this resume or, or, or you need help writing a resume. So that translate my into my activism because I heard the, 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 the mother of Tamir Rice. I heard the family members of Tanisha Anderson. I heard the family members of uh, Emmanuel Franklin talk about the, the, the devastating loss of their sons when I was on the front line for uh, BLM, right? How can I translate that into the unknown names that are struggling, that are still alive, that are near death, right? So bringing that into the Community Development Corporation, and I got a little slack from my organizing friends. It was like, they're going to change you. I said, no, 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 I'm going to change them. Because that, that we have to we have to disconnect the disconnect between the grassroots and the grass top because we need each other. You understand what I'm saying? So the, and and that's going into this. And I remember, um, you know, receiving the offer letter, and I told Jeff, I said, "Hey, I am bringing my activism into this director role." So I just want to let you guys know, <laughs> you know, so. It's going to be a different, different, we need different, we need different. I said, all right, it's all right now when different start popping out. Don't act like y'all ain't did. <laughs> now that's what it is. When it starts showing up, don't act so new, okay? <laughs> exactly. And Asia, you said something, and I think there's so much analogy there, even in the relationship that community developments need to have when it comes to working with the community where there's oftentimes a disconnect is with that woman being frustrated about you offering, giving resources, I think a lot of organizations come in and they're like, you know, we got all these good intentions. We got all these initiatives. We have all these this grant funding to be able to do this, 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 and that. And, our, and residents are like, I don't need that. I need this. Like, mm -hmm. it's important mm -hmm. to have not only that ability and that relationship to listen, but in order to, but also to have that follow through. Because one thing I also know yeah. is being someone who is a resident, but also someone who sits within an organizational role is that so many people throughout the city of Cleveland are so disenchanted with promises that have no follow through. They're so disenchanted with organizations coming in and saying, we want to help you. And then folks vocalizing explicitly what they need assistance with to the T on a granular level detail. This is what we need in our communities. And then doing a couple little things to kind of pacify, but not having any real follow through or commitment and investment into the people, into the community. So when it comes to yeah. hearing people and building those relationships, the necessary part of that relationship building is consistent and sustainable follow-through, not just for the um, grant requirement or whatever it is, whatever is stipulating you to be able to do the work that you can do at that time, but a real investment in people, which is holistically what Absolutely. I feel like we are trying to bring to um, the forefront as our CDC organization as and as well as individuals working within um, this realm who are coming from these grassroots organizing background. Absolutely. And I think also something there that I think a lot of the uh, 
CDC and now structure, that is going to make it way more holistic, right? Because you're going to have to understand, hey, this is the intent, but ho- this is the impact. How can yep. we change? How can we move forward? Yep. Right? In, in that sense. Um, so I'm, I have a follow up on that. Um, and maybe Samira, you can respond first. Um, there is no shortage of examples in ways in which space has been used by whites in the United States in particular to reify and reproduce white privilege and white supremacy. Um, this is, this holds in the community development space, but in so many other spaces as well. Um, in terms of social space, such as legislation that prioritizes white feelings of discomfort over the physical, mental, and emotional trauma experienced by people of color, and in terms of physical spaces, like installing statues that signal a desire and intent to maintain racialized systems of oppression. Um, So my question, I suppose, uh, which builds on the conversation we were just having, is how are approaches to dismantling these spaces similar or different to some of the other work you were talking about around listening and hearing and recognizing the anger gap as Devin Phillips or Phoenix um, talks about it. Um, And what are, what, you know, how are those approaches different and similar? Yeah, this is such an interesting question because I oftentimes think about my, um, me as a practitioner, right? I, I always say that I have a dichotomous relationship with planning, right? Because, the origin of planning is very much so to the benefit of rich white male landowners, right? Like in its origin, in its inception was born out of that. And now me sitting here as a black woman, uh, decades and centuries later after the inception of the field of planning, having to do the work to undo decades of economic disinvestment and um, just egregious practices on black and brown communities, So it can be a very dichotomous like tension to hold of like being someone who is charged with the responsibility of undoing all these wrongful actions, but also being on the receiving end of all of these wrongful actions as well. Right. And so when I think about um, when I think about the practice of using uh, land and space to just further uh, practice oppression, uh, oppression, um, oppressive policies and things of that nature against black and brown people. It really, it really takes me back to so many parts of my work, one of which specifically around uh, green space and green infrastructure, right? So as part of my wheelhouse of planning, I am, I, I like to say I'm outside of being a, a, a an urban planner, I'm also a environmental planner. Black folks and looking at Black folks through the lens of environmentalism is something that I'm extremely passionate about. And it's, it's, I will always say that Black neighborhoods are an environmental crisis. Our neighborhood, which is over 92%, has over 92% Black population, is in an environmental crisis. We don't have access to green space. We don't have access to things like uh, healthy green infrastructure through trees, uh, parks, you name it. And it has all of these adverse impacts on our social determinants of health. And this this isn't happenstance. It's not like trees don't grow in black neighborhoods. It's because there has been a decade decades long disinvestment in green infrastructure in cities like the city of Cleveland and around the country. But what's very interesting when looking at it on a local um, 
uh, Cleveland context is that this is once upon a time was coined the forest city. But in black neighborhoods, you have tree canopies that are as low. I mean, our neighbor, our, our uh, tree canopy in the Midtown neighborhood is 6.5%. And so you think of that and you're like, wow, like outside of all of the other tools of oppression, there are so many granular level entry points as to as in areas in which black people have to fight oppression on a daily basis. Something as simple as you would think is trees has, or access to parks has such a major lifelong impact on black people and on black communities. I mean, having access to those type of environmental benefits are a direct indicator of the health and wellness of the community. And if, a, if the community has such low health and wellness indicators like not having access to those things, what do you think sustainably the future is going to look like? And how does that trickle into all the other disparities that these communities have to face? And so when I think about the way space has been um, developed and shepherded um, for the benefit of some at the detriment of many, those are the things that I think about. I just want to say, I've learned, I'm so grateful for the position that I'm in now because I, I have the opportunity to work with people like Samir Malone. Samir Malone has taught me so much about the environment about the the data and how a lot of it is um, racist and aligned with a system that had, was built to tear down and not lift up. And I, I just want to take this moment to just just acknowledge the the greatness that I work with. Uh, and I'm just so, so grateful to have this opportunity because in the workspace, this is not, this doesn't come common where you're able to be inspired, openly inspired, um, by your colleagues. And, and I just want to mention that, um, as we talk about growing democracy, because in democracy, you need the, those partnerships and those relationships to, to, you know, keep, keep you fueled. And, and I just want to say, I'm, I'm grateful for Samir Malone. Um, Because she is definitely one that keeps me fueled. I want to say I'm super grateful for you, too, and also add something onto that. It's extremely important also in this work to have camaraderie and have support and fellowship with other Black women who are doing this work. I say that time and time again. I am so fortunate to have a community of Black women who work in Mm -hmm. a bevy of spaces, but specifically getting a chance to work alongside Asia and so many of the commonalities that we share in in our lived experience in our pathways into this work Mm -hmm. we really do have a unified mission and to have someone who could be a co-conspirator in that and pushing it forward is extremely important so I wanted to take this time to, (laughs) to, to share that as well Y'all are absolutely magic, right? If we had this team at all our CDCs, how would that change the landscape of our city? Okay, that wasn't one of our questions. That was rhetorical. Big big facts. (laughs) That was rhetorical. (laughs) That's how it was going to change. Big facts. Yes, yes, yes. Like, 
All of this is so important. So thinking about that, building relationships across lines of difference, you two have been so candid in sharing with us what that has been like for you. And so now I want to bring another group of residents into this conversation as we're talking about difference and as we're talking about race and democracy. So um, back in March of 2021, oh my God, it's been a whole year. I didn't even realize that until just now. So back in March of 2021, um, there was a march that was put together in Asiatown. And Asiatown is located um, within the uh, Midtown CDC footprint. Um, So specifically in Ward 7, this is an interesting intersection of identities in this area of Cleveland. Um, I was born and raised in the city, too, in Huff, in Ward 7. So this is a place where I grew up that admittedly does not look like the place that it is today. Um, it's also, um, one of the poorest wards in the city and the protest took place right across from, um, a recently closed down defunct grocery store, which goes back to the food apartheid that you were talking about earlier in our conversation. So it's not just Collinwood now it's Midtown, right? It's this particular area of Asia town. Um, so I want to talk a little, I want to ask you, um, specifically Sam, because I know that you were working for the CDC, um, and helped to put this event together. A shout out to Shin, shout out to Shady Wynn. We really wanted to reach out to include them in our podcast. We miss you, Shin. <laughs> uh, but we just couldn't make it happen because Shin's back um, in uh, their own motherland, which is China. <laughs> but really at understanding, um, talk a little bit about putting together this protest, the planning, the logistics, and how might this serve as an example of this intersectional solidarity? Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely cannot take credit for putting together the event because that was not on, that was not part of the role that I played. I really played in a support role of not only strip away my title as uh, manager of planning for a CDC, but really showing up in solidarity. Um, I, 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 it, it's very interesting because of course we all know transparently there's has been, you know, contention amongst both of the communities for quite some time, not just in Cleveland, but just on a on a national scale. But in in understanding that we are all fighting up against the same system of white supremacy, and I really am somebody who holds firm and true to the belief that we are ain't nobody free until we are all free. Um, it really was a no-brainer um, to show up and show that type of solidarity as a, as a Black woman who sits at the intersection of both my Blackness and woman womanness, I completely understand. And knowing although it's, although um, the experiences are different, not to, you know, um, generalize or put them into one pool, but absolutely understanding um, what it's like to have not only to maneuver through white supremacy on a daily basis, but then really being called to action to stand up against it in a fierce way. And that requires a certain level of solidarity because we all fighting up against the same machine. Thank you for that. Asia, I know that you were there in the crowd. What was your experience? Um, I know that you might not have been working for the CDC at the time, but as a frontline activist, what are your thoughts about the Stop Asian Hate March? Yeah. Um, I was there last year. I, I think I might have a, a little bit of a different take. I, w- I was not at Midtown last year. Last year, mm-hmm. I was f- full-blown for the whole year campaigning and organizing. 
um, I attended in the capacity of um, with my Black Lives Matter Cleveland colleagues. Um, we experienced some things that weren't great, if I can be honest with you. Um, we ended up actually having a debrief with old Paul afterwards to talk about some, some of the ways in which the event was hijacked by politicians and police and how there's a right way to do it. And there's a wrong way for things like that to be done. And, you know, we imparted a lot of the knowledge and the experience that we had, um, because as I stood behind the stage, as the young ladies began to speak in their native language, and there was a family right to the left of me, um, several politicians, they were speaking their native language and trying to figure out what was going on and things like that. Several politicians turned to them and told them to shush as if that wasn't their space. Um, I found issue with that because they were all up there standing and vote for me and walking around as if this was a gimmick. These are people's lives. Um, so it, I, I found, I found issue with a lot of the things that we saw. Uh, we were there in solidarity, but we had, we made the decision to leave slightly early because it was a show. The, the police who had just killed, uh, uh Asian American man, um, three weeks prior in independence made the decision to come there and show out and show up as if they were a part of uh, the disdain and that, that the Asian community and the, um, that, that they were feeling. We found issue with that because um, one, we can't let, we are, we are surrounded by, the system of oppression everywhere we go, all the things that we do. And when we have the opportunity to show up and show out and speak about things that are harming us, but then those that are harming us are there acting as if, acting as if they're there to listen. They're not. So we had a really long debrief with Opal to let them know that's not it. That's not it. And how, and then, you know, we heard the stories of how they, you know, the police were a bit abusive to a lot of the Asian community that did not speak English. And they were trying to tell them to say, excuse me. And then they were like, you know, move. So it was, it was so many things that happened that I felt so bad that a lot of the message was overshadowed with, um, you know, that, the systems that were present that day, um, you know, but we showed up in solidarity, we showed up to support and we requested that, Hey, we need you all to show up for us as well. We were very transparent about it. We we're very honest about it because there's a long history of abuse between, be, between the communities. And we were made, we made sure that we addressed it, you know, um, so for situations like that, there's always a, a, a time for healing and a time for honesty. And we made sure we took the opportunity to be honest about the healing that our community needs and that their community needs and how we can work together. Um, but it, I, I remember getting the call from actually Karis um, to, to, for BLM to show up and, you know, a lot of people within the space was just kind of confused and was like, I'm not sure. 
and I, we always, we always, you know, showing up for them and they don't be just being honest. But if we took that opportunity to show up and said, we're here now. We need you. We're going to need you because what has happened with, with you all, it happens with us all every, 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 every two days, really, we need you all. And we made sure that we voiced that. And, um, you know, I'm, I, I try to remain hopeful because a lot of people don't know what they don't know. And a lot of people are afraid of hard conversations, but for, I'm, I'm not. And if I have to be a conversation starter, if I have to be in a space to receive backlash, to, to bring about healing, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it they, because there is healing that's need that that's needed between the communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I really appreciate you sharing that. I think, you know, we've had conversations with um, Opal in this podcast and thinking about this intersectional solidarity that we've got to have, particularly between uh, Black people and Asian people. And I think part of it is the history, right? Nowhere in my education. Now, I told you I'm from the seven. Born and raised, mm-hmm. went to school mm-hmm. in the seven, Immaculate mm-hmm. Conception. Like, mm-hmm. okay, went there. No one told me about Yuri Kochiyama and Malcolm mm-hmm. X. Mm-hmm. I had to learn that as yep. a grown person in grad grown school. Person. But I've yep. sat in classrooms, right, as a young person with predominantly mm-hmm. with majority Asian students, but mm-hmm. no one told me mm-hmm. how our, our liberation is tied. Right. And so I think that that is that is a key indicator. As we begin to build these lines across difference, we have to understand Mm -hmm. who came before us and we've got to get clear right on what we're fighting Mm -hmm. against. Mm -hmm. And I will Mm -hmm. say the other Mm -hmm. part of that. And this is something that came up in our conversation uh, when we had the Opal team is really thinking about, you know, how we protest, how we resist, how we fight back and this conversation around respectability politics. We know that Mm -hmm. the just like we talked about the angry black woman here, there Mm -hmm. is still the myth of the model minority. So, okay, Mm -hmm. we're going to put this group together. We're going to protest, but, you know, we're going to make sure that the police is here because that's the right thing to do. But you have to understand, you've got to understand where they're coming from. You have to think about, there are so many undocumented people in their community. Yeah. So they are navigating things that we necessarily as black people who were descendants of those who survived, we don't have to navigate that. Right. And there are things that we have to navigate that they don't. But that's why we have to begin to have these conversations. And I'm not sure if, you know, I've lived here. I'm born and raised from Cleveland. And I'm almost Mm -hmm. a little bit ashamed to say this was the first time that I was I was ever been out on the line for Asian lives. Mm-hmm. Because in my 15 be year activism history career, I'm not sure how many public protests there have been for Asian lives. For Asian lives, yep. That's the very so, first one I've, I've experienced. Right. And so I yeah, think absolutely. it's all of these things that are mixed together, but that we have to be courageous. Like you said, we have to be courageous. We have to speak the truth and we have mm-hmm. to say things to people that they might not like, that their feelings mm-hmm. might get hurt, mm-hmm. that our feelings might get hurt, but it's the truth mm-hmm. because none of us are free until all of us are free. Absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How, how can you heal when you don't face what the pain mm-hmm. is? Absolutely. You just going act like the pain ain't there, mm-hmm. but do you know what it is? Yeah. And that's important. Mm-hmm. And like, don't, when I say don't be ashamed, because that was my first time experiencing 
a, a gathering for mm-hmm. Asian lives, right? And then to know, and now to know, and the amount of undocumented work uh, workers and and just simply humans that are living and looking to survive and, and thrive in the area. I look back and it bothers me the amount of police that had showed up. I mean, and then to find out about, you know, the things that I was saying, telling you all when they were, you know, move. This is my thing. What you mean, sir? You How you going to come to my house and tell me to move? <laughs> you know, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, with these conversations are important. We need to have more of them and and, and be open and and. and be real about it, you know, because we we can't. I, I keep saying this: we have to be less transactional and more transformative in every the work that we do, the way we live our lives, yeah. the way we treat our earth, the way we treat our neighbor, the way yeah. we speak to one another, the way we listen to one another. We have mm-hmm. to be transform more transformative, less transactional. I- Write that down. It's like the fifth call. (laughs) (laughs) We got it. (laughs) So I have a, I have a final question um, for both of you, but it's like, it's a big one. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm going to first um, have Asia answer it and then, and and then have uh, Samira uh, pass it off to Samira. Um, Just to wrap us up and think about all the conversations we've been having um, about identity, about space, about the intersections of race and democracy, what do you see as the most important aspects when thinking about the confluence of race and space um, in the context of, of, of kind of grassroots democracy, growing kind of a more democratic world? Race and space. Ooh, wee. That's a... That's one. That is a big one. You you did not disappoint on the size. I, I think acknowledge acknowledging that race is really a tool of white supremacy. I, I hate to get that deep, but I don't also hate to get that deep. Acknowledging that, just like how I spoke about you know, how the black experience is not a monolith. It's not. There is not, There are those of us who are fighting for liberation in their own way, Fi- fighting for, for, for freedom in their own way. And I think acknowledging the ways in which those of us are fighting for freedom is extremely important, right? And this this is a, this should be a one. This question is intense, but I'm I'm, I'm gonna get down to it. it, it, it acknowledgement, I, I, and I and it sounds so simple, but it, clearly it's not. And when harm is done, and someone is bringing up the harm that was done, and say, hey, this was done, right? acknowledging the, the the courage it takes to to do that and also creating the space so that it can be done in a more consistent way 
because that's where the acknowledgement will just become second nature. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Am I making sense? Cause I'm saying a lot of things right now, you know, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I, I, I want to give it to Sam because I want I want her to because I know she she's gonna bring it on in with all the dichotomy and nuances that she got up in there. <laughs> no, I think about this a lot. Actually, I actually had someone ask me a, a very interesting question. I feel like when I reflect upon my feelings and thoughts about the intersection of race and space, it really encompasses it. Um, I think about so often space and I think about space in which the most marginalized groups of society have to exist and maneuver in on a daily basis, right? So communities, neighborhoods. Um, and so often space is shaped and informed and decisions about space is shaped and informed um, through the lens of survival. So as Asia had mentioned, um, being a lot less transactional and being more transformative. I look at that in the ways and decisions are made around space that is very, that can tend to be very reactionary. Um, so when I think about developing space um, with racial equity at its center and at its core, it's really shifting away from this reactionary survival model into getting people into places in which they're thriving and getting people in, into places in which they're thriving that isn't indicative upon whatever um, transactional good that they can provide. Like oftentimes when we talk about neighborhoods and what people deserve in neighborhoods, there's also this like thing attached to the conversation of what services or labor that people can provide so that they're deserving of these liberated spaces. When really just being, just being able to be in a space, to be able to thrive in that space without it being conditional of you being some type of labor mule, but it's just intrinsically your human right to thrive in, in, in your neighborhoods and to have thriving communities. That's something that you should just be given to you. That's why I think is that's what I think is a real marker and indicator that we are centering um, racial equity um, when it comes to the conversation of the development of space because like I said specifically black folks have really never had the opportunity to exist in, in spaces in our neighborhoods um, outside of like this lens of having to survive and, the, and, and, and in instances in which we have had the gumption to create spaces for our own selves where we could thrive, whether it be, you know, uh, uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma or Rosewood, um, those things have been robbed from us. Those things have been stolen from us. So really being intentional and thoughtful when it comes to our roles in community development and on the local side, when it comes to um, city planning of creating liberated spaces for black and brown people to actually thrive in. And I know that was a roundabout answer, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm very, you got it. That. You, you rounded that it out. You rounded it out <laughs> to the nearest hundreds, to the nearest hundreds of the people, all of the folks, right? All mm -hmm. of the allies, the co-conspirators, yeah. mm -hmm. but also 
for the next black girl that's on the line. Yes. Yes. So really just thinking about um, your positionality, your identities, we are grateful that you have joined us and help us to really expand this conversation. Uh, selfishly, this is the work that I do with the Ellipsis Institute for Women of Color in the Academy. Um, and lots of folks that we've had uh, <laughs> on this podcast are my Ellipsis folks, because that's because we're doing this work, right? And this has become a place where yep. we can amplify the work that we're doing and draw attention to the things in our communities that need mm-hmm. to be changed and the role that race and democracy plays in that transformation. So thank yes. you both so, so much for joining us. Samira Malone, Asia Jones. Thank you so much, Queen. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I am Shamara, and my co-host this week was Ashley. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio in Cleveland, Ohio. This series is supported by Mark Lewin and the John Gray Painter Program. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you'd like to support the podcast, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag featuring designs by donuts and coffee head over to patreon.com backslash growing democracy oh join us next time when we continue this conversation about race and democracy